0: In the winter of 1917–18, trains went south from Moscow and Petrograd to the very edge of Russia, carrying thousands of armed factory workers. Most of these passengers were in civilian clothes, others in olive khaki army gear that had known Galician mud and German travel. The closest thing to a common uniform was the red armband they all wore. Some wore a metal cap badge in the shape of a red star, some with a hammer and plow device. The hammer and sickle had not yet caught on, and the red star was, for some reason, worn upside down. They wore ammunition belts crisscrossed over their chests. Bullets were scarce, and they wanted to keep them jealously in arm's reach. These were the Red Guards, the closest thing the revolution had to an army, and they were going to the country of the Don Cossacks and into battle. You're listening to the podcast version of Battle for Red October. This is Episode 1, Red Guards. It follows on from the introduction. This series is from the 1919 Review, a blog on history and culture. Look us up on 1919review.wordpress.com. There you'll find the text version of this episode, along with footnotes, images, edits and credits. One observer recalls the aspect of the Red Guards in these early months. Quote, They still had a poor command of the rifle, and there was nothing to say about the bearing of a soldier. But on the other hand, Fire sparkled in everyone's eyes, everyone was full of courage. End quote. Another recalls quote, They were oddly dressed, totally undisciplined people, covered from head to toe with every kind of weapon, from rifles to sabers to handguns and grenades. Arguments and fights constantly flared up among their commanders. End quote. These commanders were elected by the rank and file. Some of them were sergeants and corporals of the old army others were members of the radical left parties, the left socialist revolutionaries and the Bolsheviks. The Red Guards, rising from the slums and shop floors, were going south to fight an army that was their opposite in every way. A force called the Volunteer Army, three or four thousand strong, had gathered by the Don River for one purpose, to crush the October Revolution. It was made up almost entirely of officers and cadets. Over one in five of these men were members of the hereditary nobility who made up only 1.3% of the population at the time. I haven't been able to confirm this, but I suspect there were at least as many generals as privates in the ranks of the volunteer army. They were known by a nickname that was just a few weeks old, the White Guards. The Red Army as such did not yet exist, and the volunteers were only the first and the smallest of the white armies. But this campaign in the Cossack lands at the start of 1918 bore all the features of the early part of the Civil War, an army without officers squaring up to an army made up almost entirely of officers. The Reds had a decisive edge in numbers, the Whites in expertise and discipline. But there was a third force which was native to those lands, and whose leaders were allied to the White cause. That third force was the Don Cossack host. This week we're going to look at the origin of the Red Guards, at how these armed factory workers ended up traveling far from home to fight the officers and Cossacks. Next week we're going to examine the origin of the White Guards and also take a brief look at the Cossacks, before telling the story of what happened when these two forces met. To get a notification when that post drops, subscribe at the blog or the YouTube channel. We will begin by looking at five revolutionaries. Taken together, they provide a portrait of the Red Guards and of the revolutionary milieu. Climate Voroshilov was typical of the Red Guards. His dad was a railway worker. He began his working life at age 7 as a miner, then as a farm laborer under a kulak, then as a shepherd. This was all before age 12, when he got a place in a village school. But by age 15, he was toiling again, this time in a metalworks. At 17, he was under arrest for striking. In 1903, as a metal worker in the Hartman factory in Lugansk, eastern Ukraine, he came into contact with socialists. By 1918 he was a well-known workers' leader in the Donbass region. Klavya Nikolaeva, quote, a working woman of very humble origins, end quote, joined the Bolshevik Party in 1908. By 1917 she, quote, became the heart of the first magazine for working women, Komuniska. She was still young, full of fire and impatience but she held the banner firmly, and boldly declared that women workers, soldiers' wives and peasant women must be drawn into the party, she spoke at meetings, still nervous and unsure of herself, yet attracting others to follow. Quote. Vasily Chukov was the eighth of twelve children of a peasant family, his mother a devout Christian on the staff of the local church, his father a bare-knuckle boxer. Chukov finished his education at the age of twelve and moved to St. Petersburg, where he worked in a factory that made spurs for cavalry officers. Maria Spiridonova came from a well off family. In 1906, she was enraged by the violence and sadism of a local official. So she walked up to him one day and shot him dead. Police and Cossacks arrested her. There followed a notorious case which made headlines around the world Spiridonova suffered torture, sexual assault, and finally a sentence of death commuted to life imprisonment. But with the revolution came amnesty, and Spiridonova emerged as the leader of the Left Socialist Revolutionary Party. Alexander Shlyapnikov was one of many children of a single mother. She worked hard, leaving the children to run wild. Shliapnikov was persecuted by teachers because his mother was a member of the Old Believers, a Christian sect. He worked in a wild array of manual jobs while he was still a child, and most of the education he got came either from the truncheons and knouts of the police, or from the illegal socialist movement. He spent years in exile, years in prison. But by 1917 he was one of the foremost leaders of the Bolshevik Party. Some of these individuals will feature again in the series, some will not. But what matters is not so much the names and details, but the general portrait they provide of the Red Guards and of the revolutionary movement they came from. In Western Europe the working class were by and large the children of artisans, the workers of Russia were the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of serfs. As late as 1917 a staggering number of them still owned land in some distant village. Many supported a wife and kids in the countryside, or sent money home to their parents or worked in the city just to sustain the family farm which could not sustain itself. They were men and women of a range of different nationalities and religions. There were settled, established workers and recent migrants from the village. There were the workers of Petersburg, where gigantic metal and textile works employed thousands or tens of thousands, and there were the smaller workshops of the other cities. Even within the Petersburg steelworks, the fitters looked down on those in the foundry, the rolling mill and the forge, whose faces, quote, through the deep tan of the furnace, and quote, appeared coarse. Even on the eve of revolution most workers still contributed their kopecks to buy oil for the religious icon lamps that they kept in the corners of their workplaces. The greatest concentration of workers was in Petersburg. St. Petersburg was later called Petrograd, then Leningrad. Working-class people lived three, four or five to a single-room apartment or to a cellar, paying some of the highest rents in Europe. Workers on different shifts would share a single bunk. Outside Petersburg, it was common to sleep in a company owned barracks. Shifts were 10, 11, 12 hours. Overcrowding and overwork constituted mass and merciless social violence. 100,000 died in a cholera epidemic in 1900. One in four children died before they were a year old. Conditions are intolerable. Prices rise right. every day. The employers become more brutal, more arrogant. The more profit they make, the more they want. Their greed is limitless. To them, the workers are just fuel to stoke a furnace with. I tell you, the seeds of revolution are being sown by blind men who will not see, deaf men who will not hear. Of course, there were things in modern city life that one could enjoy, even on low pay and long hours. Workers consumed the daily newspapers and illustrated periodicals with their ads and sensational stories. They read fiction about detectives and explorers and romance. Single working women spent one-fifth of their income on clothing, often employing seamstresses to copy fashionable styles. The young male metal worker, unless the strains of working life drove him into the trap of vodka addiction, would save up for a smart suit, a watch, a straw hat, and go out walking on a Sunday afternoon. And there were, of course, political parties who offered solutions to the desperate conditions in which workers lived. There were the Social Democrats, a Marxist party who split into the moderate, loosely organized Mensheviks and the militant, tight-knit Bolsheviks. Others looked to the peasant majority instead of the workers, or were inclined to a romantic rather than a scientific outlook. These would join the Socialist Revolutionaries, the SRs, a broad party with roots in the terrorist movement of the 19th century. There were also Tolstoyans and anarchists. Three-quarters of people in the Russian Empire were illiterate, but a majority of workers could certainly read. In the smoke and grime of factory and mining districts or in the noise and disorder of overcrowded housing, they would tackle the dense legion of words printed on thin paper under titles like Iskra, the Spark, Zhizn, New Life, and Rabochai Dilo, the workers' cause. After political meetings, meditating on what they had learned, or on whatever fierce controversy had been aired, they would walk home along the unpaved, barely lit streets of the working-class districts. In winter this would mean trudging in darkness through a river of mud. The police, if they had reason to believe that a young man was a member of the Social Democrats, would arrest him and then play a simple trick that played on the psychology of party loyalty. A prisoner's mother, for example, would call on the colonel of gendarmerie and ask to be allowed a meeting with her son. Well, you know, your son is accused of belonging to the Socialist Revolutionary Party, the gendarme would say to her in a categorical tone. Oh, come, colonel, a mother would reply, in amazement. My son has always been a convinced social democrat. The gendarme would rub his hands with glee. That was all he needed. Quote. Social democrat and socialist revolutionary alike were willing to risk imprisonment, exile or death. They were willing to risk it because what was said in those meetings and what was printed on that cheap paper struck a chord with their own experiences, and offered a way forward. The bounty of nature and the great power of modern industry should not be in the hands of a few cosseted parasites, they should be the collective property of the whole people. But the bosses and the state worked hand in hand to crush any strikes and protests. How to overcome this violence? The socialists had an answer, the working class, through its decisive numbers in the big cities, through its control of production and transport, would strike the decisive blow against tsarism. But was it possible to build socialism in a country where two-thirds of the population were small property owners? Aid must come from advanced industrial countries. Germany was such a country, and was home to the most developed and impressive socialist movement in the world. The revolution must be international, must embrace the industrialized countries of the West, or it would fail. But surely those advanced countries like Germany would have a revolution long before Russia ever got around to it. Thoughts along these lines must have run through the head of the socialist worker as they negotiated the mud and open cesspits of the unlit streets. They must have wondered whether the working class could really defeat the might of the whole authoritarian system, whether the toiling people could really run and govern a country, whether they should give up the struggle and accept their lot in life. But that struggle was about to heat up. 1905 was a year of revolution. The workers of 50 towns and cities established councils directly elected from each workplace. These workers' councils were known as Soviets. In places they became parallel revolutionary governments. Workers formed defense groups to protect the Soviets, and these groups became known as Red Guards, as red was traditionally the color of revolution. But the army stayed loyal to the Tsar. 100,000 Cossacks were mobilized to crush the revolution by a charter that confirmed their privileges. The wealthy liberals supported the revolution at first but by the end of the year they were frightened and weary. They met the Tsar a lot less than halfway. There were disorders in the countryside, but by and large the cities were isolated. The Tsarist government hanged 3,000 revolutionaries, and killed as many and more again in various pogroms and repressions. There was street fighting in Wuj in Moscow, the Polish and Russian Red Guards fought bravely but it wasn't enough to overcome a professional army. Years of reaction followed. There were 410,000 members of state-sponsored ultra-right organizations, and they were on a rampage. Jewish people in particular were targeted for arson, looting and massacres. Millions fled to Western Europe or North America. It was in this context that the above-mentioned Maria Spiridonova shot dead the Tsarist official. The revolutionary parties were beaten down and disarmed and racked with internal division. The Bolsheviks and Mensheviks made their split final. The SRs divided into left and right but remained in one party. Their subsequent painful history proves that there are worse things in political life than splits. But Tsarism had been forced to make some concessions. The narrowest space for dissent was at once used to the full by the revolutionaries. The legalization of trade unions, though grudging and partial, led to successful strikes and pay rises. The new parliament, the Duma, was rigged and dominated by the landlords. But the few seats reserved for the working class were put to good use, especially by the Bolsheviks. They used the seats to give publicity to struggles, and to spread their ideas. It was in this context that Klovdia Nikolaevna, future editor of Komuniska, joined the party. The 1905 revolution had filled out abstract theory with concrete experience. The Soviets showed how the workers could form their own alternative government, their own participatory democracy, their own councils. On the other hand, the Red Guards had been no match for the army. The working class could govern but a more keen and painful question presented itself, could the insurgent people wage a successful civil war? Before that question could be answered, a different kind of war broke out. The first world war began in the summer of 1914. The frontline fighting was pure horror. This was compounded by all the worst kinds of waste, incompetence, shortages and harsh discipline. The Tsar's regime was vicious both in victory and in defeat. Over a million people were banished from the borderlands. An attempt to impose conscription on Central Asia triggered the Basmachi Rebellion. The army went in, killed 88,000 rebels and civilians. In the big cities of European Russia, not a lot of people knew what was happening in Central Asia. They were distracted by the food crisis. The burden of feeding the army made an absolute mess of the food supply system, and the price of bread kept rising. At first the war produced an atmosphere of patriotism that smothered all dissent. The Bolshevik party, riding high in 1912-1914, had been reduced to 12,000 members by 1917. Nobody expected the revolution of February 1917. Women workers in Petrograd triggered a decisive battle which drew in the whole class and raged for five days. Each night the insurgent people would retire across the bridges to the working-class suburbs. Each morning hundreds of thousands marched out again and, resumed the struggle. They had few weapons so they used stones and even sheets of ice. They burned and looted police stations, beat and killed the police. Regiment by regiment, the soldiers of the garrison joined the revolution. This mutiny was decisive. The Tsar abdicated his throne and was imprisoned. The key leaders of this movement on the ground were the members of local committees of the various socialist parties, the workers who had trudged home after meetings and poured over Iskra sitting on their shared bunks in their overcrowded flats and cellars. They had torn down a 300-year-old dynasty in five days. The power vacuum was filled by elements of the regime and its tame opposition. They formed a self-appointed provisional government, and most people were inclined at least to give them a chance. At the same time the Soviets, the Great Workers' Councils of 1905, re-emerged. They spread from Petrograd to every city and even to the regiments and villages, forming a brilliant system of participatory democracy, rough and ready, not yet embracing the entire population, but sensitive to the moods of the masses, reflecting the popular will at every turn. The delegates were subject to recall and re-election. In this honeymoon of the February Revolution, the socialist revolutionaries and Mensheviks had a decisive majority in the Soviet. Both supported the provisional government. Hopes ran high at first, and there was a mood of euphoria and national unity. It seemed everyone was for the revolution. Yesterday's hardened monarchists now called themselves liberals. Yesterday's liberals were social democrats. Those who had known Siberian exile in the fight for revolution grumbled that even the yellow press was calling itself socialist. Months passed, and the mood hardened. The provisional government proved that it was determined to continue the war. It was persecuting those who dared to touch the property of the wealthy landowners. The food situation got worse. Over the summer, the economy fell into crisis. From April on, the Bolsheviks put forward a tough and clear position, calling for the overthrow of the provisional government and for a socialist revolution. Right. A question: How many more of your young men must die in this war before the capitalists who started it are satisfied? before they have enough profit from building the tanks, the guns, the shells. How many? Fifty thousand? A million? Two million? I say none! I say stop the war, now! Our demands are simple. We want peace for the soldier. We want bread for our workers we want land for our peasants. No. The membership of the Bolsheviks rocketed from 12,000 to 350,000. In September, they won a decisive majority in the Soviet. What had changed since 1905? This time, a mass movement of the rural toilers was sweeping the countryside, seizing the estates of the nobility, and the army was crumbling under the weight of desertions and mutinies. Vasily Chukov, the son of the church secretary and the bare-knuckle fighter, found himself unemployed in Petrograd in 1917. But through one of his numerous brothers he found something to occupy his time, he joined the Red Guards. In a few months' time he would be shooting at cavalry officers, rather than making spurs for them. The Red Guards had been refounded by Bolsheviks, including Alexander Shlyabnikov. They answered to the Soviet, and were armed with weapons seized from the burning police stations or else kindly donated by workers in the war industries. Soon there were units in every ward of the city, some formed on a factory-by-factory basis and patrolling on company time. By July there were 10,000 members in Petrograd. After the failed coup by the right-wing General Kornilov in August to September the workers' army numbered 20,079 factories. By November there were 200,000 nationally. They had pistols, rifles, the odd machine gun, even a few armored cars. On duty, many Red Guards wore their Sunday best, their shirts, ties and waistcoats, watch-chains and fedoras or straw hats. Many soldiers and sailors supported the Red Guards. Kronstadt, home of the Baltic Sea Fleet, was a rock-solid bastion of Bolshevik, anarchist and left-SR sailors. But by autumn, anxiety had settled on the Red Guards. Winter was coming. The economic crisis was getting worse and famine was already a reality. Maybe these Bolsheviks were just like the others, all talk. Maybe the opportunity for revolution would pass. Maybe this movement would fall apart and there would be hell to pay, a defeat more bloody and total than that of 1905. But on the night of October 24-25 the Petrograd Red Guards were called out onto the streets. The provisional government was attempting to shut down the Bolshevik newspaper. In response the Military Revolutionary Committee of the Soviet went on a long-planned offensive. The Red Guards and their soldier and sailor allies occupied the city. There was no battle. The provisional government, hunkered down in the Winter Palace as the Reds occupied the streets outside just waited. The defenders of the Winter Palace consisted of cadets and the women's battalion. The latter was a unit of several hundred enthusiastic women volunteers for the war against Germany. To their frustration, they had been used for propaganda purposes and not sent into battle, until now. At first the cadets and women vowed to commit suicide sooner than surrender. But hours later, confused and demoralized, they let the Red Guards in with a shrug of the shoulders. These children of serfs who had lived three to a cellar, Broke into the palace and after rushing up the 117 staircases, through 1,786 doors and 1,057 rooms at last, at 10 past 2 in the morning, entered the room where the ministers of the bourgeois provisional government were and arrested them. The Reds inflicted no fatalities. Apparently, they suffered six, two by friendly fire. The journalist Louise Bryant, following up a rumor, interviewed another casualty of that night, a young woman who was injured. Well, that night when the Bolsheviki took the Winter Palace and told us to go home, a few of us were very angry and we got into an argument, she said. We were arguing with soldiers of the Pavlovsk Regiment. A very big soldier and I had a terrible fight. We screamed at each other and finally he got so mad that he pushed me and I fell out of the window. Then he ran downstairs and all the other soldiers ran downstairs. The big soldier cried like a baby because he had hurt me and he carried me all the way to the hospital and came to see me every day. End quote. "A daily newspaper which appeared on the day of the October revolution demanded, quote, "Who will govern us then? The cooks perhaps, or maybe the fishermen. The stable boys, the chauffeurs, or perhaps the nursemaids will rush off to meetings of the council of state between the diaper washing sessions. Who then? Where are the statesmen? Perhaps the mechanics will run the theaters, the plumbers foreign affairs, the carpenters the post office." Who will it be? End quote. As if in answer, the Congress of Soviets was meeting at the Smolny Institute. The vast majority of the delegates approved of the insurrection. The Mensheviks and SRs, who had once commanded a majority, were now reduced to a powerless rump. The Congress, without delay, passed decrees taking Russia out of the war, transferring the noble and church estates to tens of millions of peasants, and declaring the right of self determination for nationalities. The new regime did in a few days what the provisional government had dragged its feet on for nine months. In those days, Red Guards and sailors patrolling in the streets were harangued by well-dressed citizens who accused them of madness, anarchy, bloodthirsty violence, etc. The revolutionaries listened, sometimes puzzled, sometimes keenly interested, to their heated arguments and fabricated atrocity stories. When drunken riots engulfed Petrograd over November and December, the Red Guards must have burned with shame. The wine cellars of the aristocracy, which the soldiers had been looting, had to be physically destroyed with machine guns and explosives. It would have been possible to wade knee-deep through wine in which shards of broken glass floated. Before the year was out the revolution had spread to most cities and towns. The local Soviet would simply form a military revolutionary committee and take over. It was not plain sailing. There was street fighting in Moscow and Irkutsk, and a Cossack cadet rising in Petrograd. The Red Guards won in each case, But now a counter-revolutionary army was gathering by the Don River. It was one thing to defend your own city. It was quite another to travel a thousand kilometers to the edge of Russia to fight thousands of officers and to fight the Cossacks on their home turf. But there was nothing else for it. The Red Guards took up arms and went south to the Don. In the next post we will look at the White Guards and the Cossacks. Why did they take up arms against the revolution? Finally, we will look at what happened when red and white met in South Russia at the start of 1918 in the first front of the Russian Civil War.